From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. And here we are, rocking it for another great edition of the Automotive ADHD Show, heard around the world as a podcast, and also right here in Southern Colorado on the radio, 91.7 KLZR, Voice of the Wet Mountain Valley. My name is Matt West. I am here to talk about cars, and hopefully you are here to listen to talk about cars. That's what this show is about. I've got a lot of things to get to today. We're going to talk about the best way to strap a Christmas tree to your roof and not die. We're going to touch on how Yamaha is now designing engines from wood and the disappearance of racetracks. We're going to hit on all of those topics as well as this month's car sound giveaway winner. Stick around. That could be you. It could be you. I'm going to announce the winner for that coming up here in the third uh, segment of the show. So you definitely got to stick around for that. You could win some free stuff. So it is always worth your time. Now, of course, if you love cars, you should love the RPM Act. And you also know that I talk about this every single week, and I'm going to continue to talk about it until we get this passed through the Congress. The RPM Act basically limits the EPA's um, ability to take away your right to build race cars, uh, specifically to turn street cars into competition only track cars. And the EPA says they don't want to allow you to do that anymore. And uh, the RPM Act seeks to stop them from doing that. Of course, this doesn't affect NASCAR and F1. They've got billions of dollars and are able to uh, lobby their way out of this. Um, but no, the EPA is directly targeting the little guy. Um, you and me and everyone else who builds fun race cars as a hobby. Um, and uh, they want to put people out of business who build speed parts for those race cars. We're already seeing inklings of this in the automotive aftermarket with companies who are just deciding it's safer not to make certain speed parts in case the EPA comes after them. And that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be. And the problem is, if these companies go out of business, there's nobody around to make your street-legal catback exhausts and all your other stuff. So um, the fact is, the companies that make even your street-legal parts for your street car, aftermarket parts, um, that do pass emissions, for instance, well, they make the majority of their money through motorsports, and we need to protect them, and we need to protect your right to build race cars because race cars are cool we can fight back on this check out saveourracecars.com that is a fantastic website that lets you um, send a letter to uh, any one of your representatives you put in your zip code it tells you exactly who to send the letter to and they'll even pre-build a letter for you if you want so uh, you can do it in just a couple of minutes uh, I've had listeners of the show write in and say that they did it and heard back from their representatives. They Their reps actually replied to them on it. So we can do this. We can win it. The RPM Act. Let's get it passed. Now, uh, I went for a drive up in the mountains um, earlier this weekend, and, and I noticed something interesting. So <laughs> I won't say terribly interesting, but every four or five cars that went by, there was one with a Christmas tree. Strapped to the roof of the car. Yes, it is. It is December. It is that time of the year, of course. Um, and uh, it got me thinking, though. There's a there's a lot of people with trees kind of strapped to their roof in precarious fashions that don't look very safe, uh, to say the least. Um, there was one dude with the Christmas tree in his trunk. Like, the trunk lid was half open and the tree was sticking out the other way. 
And uh, I was just waiting for someone else to get behind him and watch what happened. <laughs> but that being said, um, AAA has released a official statement, the official guidelines on how one should strap a Christmas tree to their car. AAA, they have spoken on the matter and they have put some actual guidelines into place. I never thought we'd exist in a world where we have guidelines on how to strap a tree to the top of your car. It seems fairly, you know, fairly, uh, uh, you know, easy. You strap the tree to the roof of your car. That's that's about it. Now, they do go on to talk about, uh, before they talk about the, the ways that you can actually do it, um, they do talk about the repair costs for incorrectly strapping your tree to the top of your car. Um, and, and they can get quite high. So like minor surface scratches on the paint of your roof could be 100 to 150 bucks to have someone buff those out if they're not through the clear coat. Um, but uh, but even even worse, say, is if you um, happen to strap your tree to the roof of your car by running straps through your door frame. Say you don't have a roof rack and you run straps through the door and then underneath and then around. Well, apparently they say average cost to replace weather stripping on the door, um, though it can vary between different models. They say on average it's about 550 bucks. And then to repaint a section of severely scratched roof. So if it's like well past the clear coat, um, that's anywhere uh, between $1,000 and $1,500. And then if you have to blend that paint into other sections of the roof or other body panels, that gets even more expensive. Or you could do what I do, which is just have a beater car. And who cares if the roof is scratched? It's on the roof anyway. No one's going to look at the roof. <laughs> but um, yeah, that said, the any car uh, that I have that I could do this with is probably worth less than it would cost to repaint it anyway. So um, that being said, how do you safely transport your tree? And AAA says, um, and it's pretty simple. They say you want strong ropes or nylon ratchet straps. Yeah, I agree with the ratchet straps um, and a old blanket or a moving blanket. That's the key to not scratching the 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 scratching your roof to oblivion. So um, and, and that's what I that's what I would do. Right. You just put the blanket down, put the ratchet straps on, tie the tree down. Now, they say you want the trunk facing forward. You think with a tree that, you know, it, it comes to a tapered point right at the top of the tree. So if you lay the point forward, that would be the most aerodynamic way with that taper up front. Uh, apparently, that's a very bad idea and can lead to the tree um, taking uh, or taking to being airborne at times. So you don't want to do that. They say put the trunk first, uh, uh, strap it down. And then they say, though, this is what's interesting. Do not use the nylon straps that are provided at a lot of places where you get Christmas trees, you know, tree lots. They give you that that thin colored nylon rope, uh, that twine kind of stuff. Uh, they say, do not use that stuff. It doesn't work. It is not sufficient for highway speed, no matter what you do. Um, and then they say the final piece of advice is drive nice and easy, slowly take back roads. Um, I don't know about you, but if I'm if I'm putting a Christmas tree on a drift car, I'm going to go drift it with the Christmas tree on the roof. But uh, yeah, that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there you go. AAA has spoken on how one should tie a Christmas tree to their roof. Um, or you could do what, you know, you could just be like, you know, a regular American and just buy a pickup truck instead. Then you put it in the bed. Solves all those problems. Solves all of those problems. Um, though I will admit, I do like going out to the uh, some of the car meets at this time of the year and seeing guys with all shapes and manners of cars with Christmas trees tied to the roof 
uh, just for decorative effect. And I, I think it's pretty, especially when you see like the Porsche guys. I feel like something about Porsche guys, they always put Christmas trees on the roofs of their 911s around this time of the year. So, um, yeah, if you do that and um, you want to see how much speed it takes to remove the tree from your roof, um, let me know and uh, and send a video of it. Might You might as well send a video of it as well. Facebook.com. Uh, slash uh, automotive ADHD. So, hey, there you go. Now you know how to put a Christmas tree on the roof of your car and not die. Basically, you just strap it on and uh, and hope for the best. Uh, and that, that seems to be what everyone I saw earlier this weekend was doing. Um, now, here's another thing uh, I want to talk about here uh, while, we're, while we're still in the first segment, which is a new TikTok trend, okay? This is interesting. So this new TikTok trend is actually one that that I think I support. That uh, that said, um, the latest TikTok trend is the, quote, hashtag tablecloth challenge. Now, you probably remember some old TV advertisements from 15, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I can't remember which brand it was, but I know the ad in my head where they're demonstrating how fast their car is by having a nicely set table um, and, you know, with, uh, with, you know, fine wine glasses and plates, you know, a good table setting with a cloth underneath it. And, um, then there's attached to that cloth is a rope. And then attached to that rope is a sports car. And the idea is you accelerate as hard and as fast as you possibly can. And the sports car is going to pull up the slack in the rope. And then that is going to take the tablecloth and pull it straight out from underneath the table setting. And if you do it right, if you do it right, everything that's sitting there on the table will stay there. The tablecloth itself will just be whipped out from underneath it if you do it right. Um, heck, heck, even Mythbusters did a thing on this probably 10 years ago. Um, and it is possible. It can be done. And you do need, however, to um, have a either a lot of rope or a fairly fast car. Now, where this is becoming a, uh, a TikTok challenge is... Uh, all manners of supercar owners are, are taking to the internet platform to um, to test it out. I don't know why we're suddenly doing this, uh, you know, 10 years after this was popular. But you know what? That's fine. That's fine. We can do it because it's cool. And um, what's interesting is when you scroll through TikTok, when you go through a number of the videos, uh, you can see a lot of people who were, you know, actually successful in doing it. There's 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 certainly a few. And um with with that, there's also a fair number of people whose cars perhaps aren't as fast as um, as they think they are, um, and <laughs> which is maybe a little dose of reality for uh, some supercar owners and some folks who think their cars are you know remarkably fast. Now, granted, you can honestly do this with a slow car, um, so long as you have enough um, as long as you have enough lead up, enough rope with it. Uh, and this has also spawned off a number of, uh, of parody versions as well, uh, namely uh, folks using like ATVs and other things to do it as well. Um, and, and you know what? As far as TikTok challenges go, this one's surprisingly harmless. This is surprisingly uh, tame. You know, I, I'm actually I am I am thoroughly uh, shocked at, at how tame of a TikTok challenge this is. Whenever I open up a segment saying, so there's a new TikTok challenge today, usually it involves someone like dying in some capacity. Um, but no, this seems pretty, pretty safe. You know, you got a fast car, you got a table, got a nice setting, you got a long rope, you pull that tablecloth out and then you win some internet points and you get like five clicks on your video and then, then your day is done. Um, now that said, you know what? It, I, I even feel like this is something 
Um, I could try. I don't own a single car nearly fast enough to try this. If we go through my fleet of cars, um, not including the fact that some of them don't run, so they're doing zero miles an hour right now, but the Volvo 240, no, that's not fast enough. The AMC Hornet, no, no, that's not <laughs> fast enough. Um, the A86, uh, no, no, definitely not. They're slow. No one gets that. They're slow. Uh, the S2000, no, it's still slow. It's like 200 horsepower. No, still too slow. But that being said, um, I do have a TikTok page for this show. And uh, on that page, I do post various things from working in my garage to, you know, promos for the show. Uh, I may try this um, and uh, and put it up there. So if I do that um, and it may it may fail spectacularly, it may. But, you know, what? it'll be a whole lot of fun. And uh, if I do that, I'll go ahead. I'll let you know. We'll talk about it on the um, on the show. And uh, you can, you know, obviously head over to the TikTok page and uh, watch me fail spectacularly at uh, at doing this. And I probably, I will fail, but hey, you know what? You know what? It's worth, <laughs> it's worth the shot. It's worth the shot. Now, anyway, I got a whole lot of other stuff to get to here. We've got a pretty packed show. We're going to talk about Yamaha and how they are building engine parts from wood now. How does that work? I'll tell you about it coming up after this. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of turbos danced in their heads. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a Mark IV Supra with boost to hear! And a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be Saint Nick! And then, in a twinkling, I heard the tires screech, the prancing and pawing of each horsepower. Down the track, St. Nicholas came with a bound. A bundle of parts he had flung on his back. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings with speed parts and more, for the children would not have to return the core. He sprang to his Supra, with tires to roast, and down the track he went, making the most. With forty pounds of boost on tap, he tore, knowing the children would soon have more saying Merry Christmas from the Automotive ADHD Podcast. Ho, ho, horsepower. And here we are, rocketed for the second half of the Automotive ADHD show, heard as a podcast and on the radio in Southern Colorado. Matt West here, hanging out with you, talking cars. Those car sounds were sent in courtesy of Steph. That is his new-to-him 2016 Shelby GT350. That, of course, is the cool one, you know, with the flat plane crank. That's, uh, you heard there, over 8,000 RPM in a... um, in a V8, which is which is pretty cool. Now, Steph tells me um, that in, he, he used to own before that a Honda S2000, and he says that the Shelby GT350 to him is like a big S2000 with that high revving feel and all of that, which is fantastic. I You know, I'm kind of jealous. That's a cool engine in a cool car. Yeah, it's still a Mustang. It's still a Mustang. And, and you know, with that being said, you do have to be cognizant of whenever there's a crowd, you know, your your car, should it sense a crowd is nearby, could suddenly veer in the direction of that crowd. Uh, as we know, all Mustangs have a um, 
have an insatiable bloodlust for crowds at car meets. But that being said, um, it sounds like a lot of fun. That's a cool car sound. If you want to send in your car sounds, you can do that. And when you do that, uh, you are entered for a chance to win uh, not only a $25 parts store gift card, not only the Automotive ADHD sticker, the As Heard on the Automotive ADHD Show sticker, but also the Automotive ADHD embroidered keychain. Lots of cool stuff to win. Doesn't cost you anything to submit this. I mean, obviously, it costs you the price of the car, and then you have to record yourself, you know, driving the car, I, I guess. So either way, this is a free gift card, keychain, and sticker, or if you spent 40 grand on your car in order to do this, then it's a $40,000 keychain gift card and sticker. But however you want to look at that, you have a chance to win that. You can send those car sounds in. I play them on the show every single week. Facebook.com slash automotive ADHD. There's a little post right there uh, pinned to the top of the page. You go ahead, drop in the comments, send that car sound in. Uh, if you're, uh, If email is more your speed, then you can do that too. Matt, at throttlewarrior.com. Hey, uh, so let's talk about some other things like uh, Yamaha, who has taken to building a number of their engine parts out of wood. Yeah, they, they've... <laughs> wood engines. That's not usually something you associate with engines is wood. Um, and uh, now, granted, they're not building the engine blocks or the pistons or the cylinder heads out of wood. We, we, we haven't gotten there yet because... That's going to be quite the challenge, um, just considering the heat and pressure and all the stuff involved with that. However, they are taking to making wooden parts for anything that was plastic. They are now making out of wood. But apparently it's not just any type of wood. Um, apparently it is uh, it is a little more interesting than that. It's called CNF, which stands for Cellulose Nanofiber Resin Composite. And what exactly does that mean? Um, and, and so I decided to do a, a, you know, I decided to delve into um, a bunch of research on this to figure out, well, what does that mean? That's that's not clear, like cellulose nanofiber resin. All right, I can surmise that it's got fibers from plants and then they bond it in a type of resin. That, that makes sense, right? Um, just like how, you know, in a lot of cases, carbon fiber is just those carbon fibers bonded in resin. However... Uh, the challenge came when I started actually looking this up. I started looking up from different manufacturers, different suppliers, what exactly this is. Uh, and this comes from a company called Seiko PMC Corp. In, uh, and they're, they're stationed out of Japan. And uh, they say cellulose nanofiber is a nanofiber obtained by defibrillating cellulose to a nano size and has superior features, including low density, high strength, high elastic molecules, and low thermal expansion. Okay. That tells me what it does. That doesn't tell me what it necessarily is. What are you? So, okay. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then it says CNF can be, uh, applied as reinforcing fibers for thermoplastic resins. Okay. So that tells me what it is again. How do they make it? I, I keep searching, right? I'm, I'm still on my quest here to find it. So I keep searching. Um, and I find this from another company called cow corp, which is also in Japan. Um, all of these have like, you know, scary 1980s movie villain company name, something corp at the end of it. Uh, and uh, but they say uh, CNF forms bundles of cellulose molecules um, in plants such as trees and has been anticipated to be effectively utilized worldwide as a sustainable high performance material. 
Okay, that tells me what it is. It doesn't tell me how they make it. Do you see the trend here? I keep searching more and more from uh, CalCorp here, reading up some of their technical stuff about it. Um, they say CNF is held together tightly by hydrogen bonding between and within molecules. Um, okay, so how do they make... Again, I, I really don't seem to understand how they make it, and there's not a very clear explana explanation on how they necessarily make it. So, okay, having, you know, done my due diligence, having done my research into it, and still not finding a clear answer on how exactly they make this stuff, um, we're just going to have to chalk it up to witchcraft. Because I think at this point, anyone who turns trees into plastic is um, definitely a witch. And so Yamaha has uh, taken to the realm of witchcraft to build engine parts, in my opinion. Um, now, Yamaha says they've partnered with another supplier to that's a paper company, the Nippon Paper Industries Company, um, to make this stuff. Which that makes sense. Paper, you know, they you know, turn, you know, plant fiber into paper. Okay, I guess they turn it into plastic too through, again, witchcraft. Um, now, this has some interesting applications though because, and why is this cool? So this is cool even though we don't understand how it works and we only understand that it is witchcraft. What is cool about this is that you can make all sorts of different engine parts, be it covers for other things. You can make sensor housings, um, you can make any essentially anything in your engine bay that's plastic. They say that this material is a very good way to make those parts, um, and uh, and that's a, it's a very effective way. And they say it's an environmentally sustainable way. And as you know, manufacturers are um, definitely definitely jumping on the environmental sustainability bandwagon. Uh, however, you know, and you know what? At the end of the day, if you can make a part that is, um, you know, for instance, uh, cheaper and more reliable, more durable, and it's environmentally sustainable in the sense that, you know, you can just keep growing trees and turning them into plastic through witchcraft. Um, and, and then on top of that, you can recycle it too. You know what? That's a win-win. That's in, in that case, that's a win-win where, where it, it comes to where it becomes difficult to implement environmentally sustainable things is when those environmentally sustainable things don't necessarily um, meet the performance goals of what they're replacing. That is when you tend to have um, issues, in my opinion. That's when maybe perhaps it gives research into this a bad rap, too, is when it's maybe incomplete. It doesn't it's not as good as what you're trying to replace. It's not as good as what's going out. And then you're implementing this new, you know, whatever it is, right? What for whatever application you're using. Um, now, my questions about this, obviously, you can make things like plastic clips for wiring harness, sensor housings. Um, they say they can make certain water pump covers for it. Uh, yeah, there's a number of things that that you can you can do this with. And again, if you got it, if it's plastic, you can take this stuff and turn it into plastic and, and use that. Now, my questions long term on this, um, Yamaha says that they are going to implement this um uh, next year for their water sports vehicles. And then by 2024 for certain other production things, they want to move it to their, um, or rather they're going to start in their water sports vehicles in 2024. And then after that, they're going to um, start using these parts in their motorcycles as well as other products. And why this applies to cars is because Yamaha develops a lot of stuff for cars too. Uh, Yamaha oftentimes is a big supplier of different parts for other manufacturers, you know, and that comes down to the whole supply chain of how OEM parts work, original equipment, 
you know, manufacturer parts. Um, you know, for instance, Honda doesn't make every single part. Toyota doesn't make every single part. They get it from suppliers and put it together. So it's not unreasonable to think that this wood fiber plant resin could make its way into other cars, probably Japanese cars initially. Yamaha is famous for building um, engines for certain cars. You know, the, the 4AGE and the Toyota uh, A86, for instance, the MR2, the you know, all the vehicles that the 4AGE came in, Yamaha developed the, the cylinder head on that. And they also had a lot of developing the cylinder head for the, um, the 1JZ, the 2JZ. Um, they've developed a number of other engines, too. They developed the weird um, overhead cam aluminum V8 that Volvo used in the mid-2000s. I mean, you know, Yamaha actually has their hands in a lot of the automotive industry, even though Yamaha, as a manufacturer, doesn't make cars. You don't go buy a Yamaha car. You maybe buy a Yamaha motorcycle, but that said, they still have their hands deep, deep into the supply chain for all sorts of other manufacturers, which is cool. So, right. You know, basically, I think this boils down here is, you know, my questions about this new material, because we already know plastic is not always the greatest material in the engine bay. I mean, take apart, you know, take apart anything on a car that's now 20 years old. Okay. And you'll find that the plastic that's been in the engine bay for 20 years, be it connector clips, be it other little parts, tiny little things, um, after all that heat exposure, it gets brittle and it breaks. And and that's just a fact. The plastic breaks. The plastic deteriorates in a way. It, it definitely does. So here's the question then. How durable will this uh, CNF stuff be? Um, how resistant to heat will it be? Uh, will it be more expensive? Because if it's, yeah, all right, sure, it's more sustainable. It's a better part. It has more durability and it's more sustainable, like I was saying. Well, no one's going to buy it if it's substantially more expensive because companies are in the business of making money. They're not going to buy it just because it's sustainable. They're only going to buy it if it's sustainable and it makes sense um, to their checkbooks. That's that's how they're going to buy it. Um so yeah, will it resist heat? Will it be durable? Will it be more expensive? And I guess, can you eat it? Because it's also made out of plants. Uh, no, <laughs> probably scratch that last one. Um, but those questions have yet to be answered, but I think it'll be kind of cool, you know, seeing a new application for um, plastic parts in vehicles. Uh, this could expand to uh, other parts too, interior parts uh, and things like that. And um, who knows, your dashboard... Your dashboard, we, we might come full circle if they start making dashboards out of this because, you know, dashboards of old might have had a piece of wood trim on them. So, it's, you know, a dashboard, no, it's not really how that works, but you might have had a piece of wood trim on your dashboard and then it turned into plastic and now we're coming full circle and that plastic is now going to be made out of wood. So I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, for, for the time being, though, I think we can all agree that Yamaha has taken to the realm of uh, witchcraft and um and we'll see what happens um i don't know no i don't know nothing good can come from witchcraft so there you go now hey coming up we're going to talk about racetracks and how they're disappearing that's coming up right here after this at the speed council getting things done fast is our priority we do everything fast from driving working sleeping and eating this is Tim. Hello. And by the time this ad is over, he'll have bicycled across the earth 69 times. Nice. Even if our name sounds unfamiliar, you know our work. F1? Pfft, child's play. 
the world's first supersonic jet? Yep, that was us. Apollo 11? Also us. The fastest animal in the sea? Hell, we even wrote the Wikipedia article. Fast. And we're so dedicated to speed that we've genetically engineered the world's first hyperspeed speed machine. With this scientific breakthrough, you can interact with and download your favorite automotive podcast a whole day early. How's that for fast? Learn more at facebook.com slash automotive ADHD. This message approved by the Speed Council and the Church of Fast Things. Oh yeah, and here we are rocking it for the third half of the Automotive ADHD show. Heard around the world as a podcast on the radio in Southern Colorado. Those car sounds were sent in by... Cameron and Cameron sent in a set of car sounds last week, and now those car sounds were from his dad's um, Pontiac GTO judge, affectionately called the goat. Yeah, that was the goat ripping down the drag strip. And uh, now, the reason I'm playing Cameron's uh, car sounds, uh, not only because they are cool, but because Cameron is, and I'm going to do the drum roll on the desk, the customary drum roll here uh cameron is the winner of this month's car sound of the month giveaway yes congratulations i was talking about it in the last segment about how you can win all sorts of great things the the uh the gift card 25 dollars gift card the keychain the sticker all of the above cameron congratulations you are this month's winner and i will uh i will go ahead and message you here uh over facebook and uh, get your address and then uh, coordinate getting everything sent out to you. Now, of course, if you didn't win this month, that's okay because I, I don't, you know, I, I don't get rid of entries every month. So if you sent in car sounds in months prior and then I grab another name from the bottom of the trunk or something like that, the, uh, the trunk of the AMC, um, if I grab another name from there, your name could still be in there if you didn't win. So um, you definitely got to... Um, Gotta gotta stay tuned for your chance to win more cool stuff. Of course, if you want to send those car sounds in, Facebook.com slash automotive ADHD is the place to do it. Um, or if you want to be extra fancy and uh and go ahead and uh put them on a flash drive, put the car sounds on a flash drive, and then tape that flash drive to um oh, how about some RE71 tires with uh, you know, 200 treadwear track tires uh in um 255 45 17 that sounds about right and then you can send that to me too and then i'll play your car sounds for forever um now i got to touch on this in the uh in the last segment of the show here this is from alana Schur from car and driver she wrote an op-ed up there uh and go read her article on this because it is really interesting it goes into a lot more depth than i have the time to go into right here on the podcast but she addresses a growing issue, which is that racetracks are disappearing and they're disappearing pretty fast. And now I've talked about this before uh, on the show as well, but she addresses, addresses the point by making an interesting statement. She says, quote, state uh, skateboarding is not a crime, but sliding a car is. So why do we have so few places to race and do donuts? Um, and that's a really interesting point. When you think about it, yes, skateboarders have skate parks that they can, you know, that they can go do uh, skateboarding in. They can go skate on the sidewalk in a lot of places without getting in trouble. So why is it with cars the second we go 
rip up in a, a parking lot, it's, you know, it's a jailable offense. And if you're in California, it's a felony. It's a triple felony if you're in California. Uh, but that being said, why is it why is it so difficult? Now, obviously, cars and skateboards are, yes, while they both share four wheels, they are different. Cars are heavier. Cars are louder. Cars, cars are faster. Um, but the fact is that uh, acts of, you could say, automotive degeneracy uh, have been making the news lately. And okay, automotive degeneracy, that's fine and all if you're ripping it up in a safe place and it's no issue, it's not illegal, you know, certain tracks, certain areas, that's fine. But the issue is becoming mainstream with the number of the street takeovers. I've talked about it before on this show. I've talked about my stance on said street takeovers. If you're unfamiliar, street takeovers aren't just street racing. Street takeovers are where you get a large group of people who close down an otherwise busy intersection in a city to go do donuts in the intersection as well as all sorts of other things. And, um, and the problem is a lot of these have made mainstream headlines. And that's because, you know, A, everyone's got a camera phone these days and everyone's got a smartphone and can record it and post, post it on the internet. Um, and B, because there's just more media attention on this right now. This past year, I feel like, has had the media, the mainstream media, um, focusing their attention a lot on so-called street racing and street takeovers. And the problem is when you do that, um, it then becomes something that is in the public eye that people that are then very aware of constantly. People who aren't into cars are aware of it. And they're only aware of it in the negative connotation that exists with said street takeovers. Uh, and in fact, some street takeovers have resulted in the death uh, the deaths of several people, which is absolutely tragic. That's not what we want as car enthusiasts. We want to go have fun racing our cars around and, and have everyone be happy and everyone have fun and enjoy it. That's what we want to do. We don't want tragic things to happen. And um, the problem is, in the past year, it has become increasingly a issue in the media. More people are aware of it than ever. Um, and the result of that, too, is otherwise good, you know, car enthusiasts um, are, are being discredited by all the bad stuff that happens. And, you know, for instance, when we talk about arguing for our right to build race cars, when I talk about the RPM Act at the beginning of the show, um, you know, we we tell all these legislators, these politicians, we do not want the government um, interfering with our right to build and race cars. Um, and the problem is the politicians have to both listen to us, the enthusiasts, um, you know, raising our complaints about these regulations. But they also have to listen to the rest of their constituents who are just people who maybe live in the city, who maybe live in their state. And in doing so. Um, they they have to weigh both things. They have constituents who want one thing and constituents who want another thing. And that's challenging. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks who aren't car enthusiasts just see loud cars. They say, ah, oh, the cars are annoying. They keep me up at night. The exhaust is too loud. This is too loud. Those guys keep street racing past my house every night. And those people have a vote that counts just as much as ours in a lot of these things. Um, and uh, they have a negative opinion of all of car culture now because of a lot of the street takeovers and a lot of the bad things and a lot of the, importantly, the media coverage. And it's just that. It, it's not that these events have increased necessarily. It's that the media coverage itself has increased. Um, Elena Schur from uh, Car and Driver, who wrote this op-ed, 
um, talks about exactly this. Um, she says, quote, just because it's in the news doesn't mean it's new. A paper in Reading, Pennsylvania reported that Harry Laird and Joseph Wells were disciplined for street racing on January 22nd, 1879, not 1979, 1879. She goes on to say the men were told to keep their horses to a walk. They were street racing horses. Then she further says here in the article, in 1966, police, uh, a police sting in Los Angeles, uh, the cops arrested 66 racers and impounded 29 cars, which were, quote, unmistakably modified for racing. Um, she also makes further mention about Brock Yates, the Cannonball Run. The Cannonball Run is a fascinating thing. Uh, obviously, a lot more people know about it now because of Ed Bolian and his kind of coverage on it through his YouTube channel, VinWiki, and things like that. But the Cannonball Run is one of those things, you know, that's a coast-to-coast street race from New York to L.A. in the fastest time possible. Uh, what's also crazy is when I talk to uh, uh, friends and people who uh, aren't necessarily into cars, uh, and we get on the topic of Cannonball one way or another. They say, oh, Cannonball, I love that movie. And uh, then I have to remind myself, oh, yeah, it was a movie. And then I tell them, you know, that happened for real, right? And they're, they're usually like mind blown. They're like, what? Like that actually happened? Yes, that actually truly happened. Maybe not exactly as the movie depicts it, but that happened and continues to happen to this day. It still happens all the time. So um, with that, um, the point is that the street racing isn't anything that's new. It's not. It really isn't. Uh, and there's no data, there's no real numbers on this uh, as of right now to say whether or not it's increasing in frequency. And I don't think it is. And I don't think it is. I think, you know, it's been a consistent factor. It's just the age of the internet and the age of fast-paced media has allowed more people to be aware of it. And now it suddenly seems like a problem. Um, the issue here, too, um, uh, is, you know, well, what do we, what do we do about this? And how does this tie into racetracks? The problem is racetracks operating racetracks to go do this legally. A lot of times people say, well, just take it to the track. Well, the problem is that's becoming more and more difficult in places in the United States as well as around the world. You can't just go take it to the track. It's just in some cases there is no track anymore. And that has come because of a lot of different factors. Um, you go on, go on the internet and search uh, closed automotive racetracks. You will find massive lists of tracks that are closed, that are defunct, that are no longer in business. Tracks that once held NASCAR and Indy races uh, are now paved over, are, have been bulldozed to pieces and are now... Uh, have shopping centers built on top of them. We don't need more shopping centers. What we need are more racetracks. That's what we need. And the problem here comes from a society and a government who says that's clearly bad. Stop doing that instead of um, allowing people to do that and, and, and at least, you know, having the provisions for people to do it who want to do it and who want to pay for it. I'm not saying the public needs to pay for it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the people who have the provisions and are willing to do it to allow them to do it. And, you know, I feel fortunate here in Colorado because we have a lot of surprisingly a lot of racetracks. Obviously, we have the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, but that's not a racetrack. You can't just go up there and race it um, to to my disappointment. You can't do that. But we do have the Pikes Peak International Raceway. We've got the High Plains Raceway. We've got La Hunta Raceway uh, and we've got the IMI Motorsports 
um, complex as well. And and so we've we've got a few of them that are are good and they're reasonably priced, but not all racetracks are reasonably priced. The problem also comes when you have folks who want to just go slide their car around a track and the only track you've got um, is a big fancy road course that charges $500 a day to go race it. No one's going to do that. It's just not not reasonable. And I get why tracks have to charge a lot of money in some cases. You, It is expensive to operate a track. You've got you know, the maintenance of the pavement surface. You've got the facilities, the bathrooms, the offices, the stands. You've got the maintenance of all of that. And you've got, not to mention, insurance, all the liability insurance for that, too. Um, you know, part of that, your, your entry fee at tracks goes to support all of those things. Uh, however, what is interesting is um, in this op-ed, um, the, the, um, Alana Schur talks about how there was a program um, that, was, uh, that was put together in the, the 1960s, um, and it was called the Brotherhood of Street Racers. And it was a program that was put together to allow legal and organized racing in Los Angeles. And um, the fact is that after this program, um, you know, happened and, you know, the, the people who put this program together back in the day recognized that people were building um, their own race cars and there was a lot of, you know, useful skills and knowledge that went into that. And they, you know, the organizers behind this felt like allowing a legal outlet for this would be better for the community overall and provide a better place for certain skills to be used and businesses to grow you know, in the automotive, you know, scene and uh, with fabrication and aftermarket parts and all of that. And that's very true. And what's interesting is that the police uh, noticed that um, the, the, the decline in street mayhem, the decline in street racing cases and all, you know, all this stuff that happened went down, they say, by as much as 70 to 75 percent by merely allowing a cheap and accessible way to do it. Um, and again, the key here being cheap and accessible, um, the, the cases of street racing went down substantially. I mean, 70% is a, is a, is a huge number there. Um, and so what, what can we do about that nowadays? Obviously a lot of people, you know, who, you know, if you have other hobbies, you know, you want to go, you know, ride a bicycle or a skateboard in a skate park, there's a skate park for that. You know, if you want to go golfing, there's a golf course for that. You want to go play basketball, you go to the park. You, there's some basketball hoops. There's nothing for car enthusiasts. And I think an interesting solution to this would involve, um, you know, perhaps utilizing some industrial sections in certain cities, you know, and it could be a profitable business venture for someone with some investment capital to make this happen. And then they could make some money out of this. Um, but, you know, the, the biggest complaint, obviously, is the noise. Uh, of cars. Well, industrial areas and cities are already zoned and, you know, sanctioned areas where loud things happen, where machines and, you know, industrial stuff and factories operate. Uh, airports and stuff on the outskirts of cities have industrial areas around them. No one's complaining about noise at an airport with <laughs> jet engines. So, you know, finding an area in that, a, a large parking lot, for instance, could be fairly cheap to operate and maintain. It wouldn't be like trying to operate a whole drag strip or a road course. Um, and you could set up autocross courses in it for handling courses. And then you could set up drift courses in the big parking lot for people who just want to go for a rip. You charge a reasonable price. You go for a rip, maybe one, two cars at a time, keep it safe. And you have a blast at it. And it's something you could do every weekend. One problem with a lot of big tracks is 
they have so much overhead that in order to do events, they need to make a good amount of money to cover their costs and their overhead. So they need to, instead of doing events every weekend, they'll do events every month or every two months to get enough people in one event to offset the cost of that overhead. But if you do something more simple, like have a skate park, but for cars in an industrial area, um, there can't be much overhead there. I mean, you don't even need what you need a paved surface and you need some barriers to keep people from wandering into it. And, um, and, and that's it. I mean, maybe you could set up some lights in there for doing it at night, but like, that's it. Your overhead's really low. No one's expecting you to have grandstands. No one's expecting you to have bathrooms and all these other things that you'd have to maintain. Um, the overhead would be substantially lower. You could even repurpose like parking garages, like old parking garages as like multi-story drift courses. Now I'm sure that's probably not safe, but, but it would be really cool. I'm just saying there's, I think there are solutions. And I think that, you know, a business minded person who maybe is also an auto enthusiast who would want to put the investment capital into either buying an existing parking lot in an industrial area or building one could stand to make some good money and run some community events with it. And it wouldn't be that expensive compared to, you know, building an entire Button Willow Raceway or, you know, Laguna Seca. It would, it would be nowhere near the cost of that. And therefore, the overhead would not be that high. And therefore, people wouldn't have to pay nearly as much to get into it. Um, and obviously, you then, I mean, the the opportunity to build more community around that, the opportunity to build more business around that uh, is absolutely there. Um, and you know what, Hey, during the week when you're not racing there, you could use it for other stuff. You could be running a paid parking lot while, you know, during the regular hours of the week, there's, there's different ways you could do it, right? That's just one of my spitball ideas, but there are different ways you could do it. The problem again, of course, comes with a lot of tracks. Again, it's just in a lot of cases, not being profitable to run really big tracks. And I think that that is indirectly, uh, contributing to a large chunk of uh, this street mayhem, as the media likes to call it. Now, I want to finish here on one thought. I talked a while back to Connor Hudson. Connor Hudson is making a uh, was making a documentary film when I talked to him back in April of this year about disappearing racetracks, about exactly this point. So let me play this clip from him right here. Give this a listen. What are some of the tracks that, or some of the history, some of the stories, you know, of your film? What have you learned so far in the production of this? Well, I've been trying to keep it to Pike's Peak. The only thing is that Pike's Peak, you know, doesn't really have a history past the 90s, I think, whereas some of these other tracks like Lakeside uh, clear back into like, I'm pretty sure it was created in 1913. So it has a whole century of uh, stories to tell, basically. Um, but even then, you know, there's still tons of other uh, stories of places closing, places that are currently abandoned, places that got turned into other things. I didn't even know that the Englewood Speedway, which is pretty much within walking distance from my house, is uh, a, a business park now. I had no idea. And there's no remnant of that place. So wow. uh, there's just some really interesting stuff to... It, it all has to do with property. And, you know, it's like I say, in one, of the, one part of the script, I say, you know, nobody really cares about the local McDonald's closing down because usually another one will just take its place. But this is very different because usually these places, there there is no replacement. Like these places are closed down or just kind of left behind. So what, at the end of the day, not trying to be doom and gloom here, but what we can do right now is just support the local tracks that exist, support the RPM Act to keep grassroots motorsports alive. If there's no grassroots motorsports, there's, there's, there's none of this. It's just not going to happen. Um, you know, allowing the EPA to do their thing. You know what? That could even cause more 
street mayhem to happen as they, you know, people literally can't race. The people literally can't race at all at that point. So, uh, of course, they're going to do it on the streets. But you know what? That's what we can do. We can support what we've got right now. We can make people aware of it. We can give other folks a good impression of the car scene and the motorsport scene along uh, along with that. So anyway, hey, there you go. Thanks for joining me on this edition of the Automotive ADHD show. Uh, now, remember, this show does happen on video. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Rumble. You can also subscribe to this show wherever fine podcasts. And, well, hey, I guess this one are uh, downloaded. Give it six stars on Spotify. Blow it up. Give them a reason to add a whole new rating and i do want to thank my patreon subscribers as well if you want to find out more about the patreon if you want to become a member of the speed council check out the speedcouncil.org